I had never known sorrow. Now it is a field I have inherited, and I till it. The Greeks say it was the Turks who burned down Smyrna. The Turks say it was the Greeks. Who will discover the truth? The wrong has been committed. The important thing is, who will redeem it? Old moles are broken in the north. In the dark streets, firing starts. Garvahi. Garav Ahi. A rough field. Lost in our separate work, we meet at dusk in the narrow lane. I press back against a tree to let him pass, but he breaks against our double loneliness with, so you're home again. Vast changes have taken place and rulers have passed away, dynasties fallen, since that glorious autumn day when Lord Mountjoy, accompanied by his land steward, arrived by coach in Omar. Catching a bus at Victoria Station, symbol of Belfast in its iron bleakness, we ride through narrow huckster streets, small lamps bright before the Sacred Heart, bunting tagged for some religious feast, to where Cave Hill and Divis, stern presences, brood over a wilderness of cinemas and shops. Victorian red brick villas framed with aerials, Bushmill hoardings, orange and legion halls. A fringe of trees affords some ease at last from all this dour, despoiled inheritance. The shabby through otherness of outskirts. God is love chalked on a grimy wall, mocks a culture where constraint is all. His lordship stood high with the government of the day. He was wealthy and had acquired through Charles Blunt, the first earl, an immense tract of the O'Neill country. As he rode along, no menacing banner of that ancient sept frowned down on him from Dune or Tower. Through half of Ulster that royal road ran, through Lisburn, Lurgan, Portadown, solid British towns lacking local grace. Headscarfed housewives in bulky floral skirts hugged market baskets on the Rexine seats, although it was near the borders of Tyrone. End of a pale, beginning of O'Neill. Before a stranger turned a friendly face, yarning politics in Ulster monotone. Bathos as we bumped all the twilight road, tales of the ancient order, Ulster's volunteers. Narrow fields wrought such division, and narrow they were, though as darkness fell, ruled by the evening star, which saw me home to a gaunt farmhouse on this busy road, bisecting slopes of plaintive moorland where I assume old ways of walk and work so easily, yet feel the sadness of return to what seems still, though changing. Hugh O'Neill was soundly asleep by the banks of the Tiber. 
where no bugle blast of his fiery clansmen could ever reach or rouse him. MacArthur's stronghold was a mere tradition by the banks of the Strool. His lordship could ride easily, for the echoes of Lav Darakabuz had long since faded away among the hills of the north. Broken was Tyrone's pride, and vanquished Clanaboy. No words worthy in dream enchants me here, with glint of glacial quarry, totemic mountain, but merging low hills and gravel streams, oozy blackness of bog banks, pale upland grass, rough field in the Gaelic and rightly named, a setting for a mode of life that passes on, harsh landscape that haunts me, well and stone in the bleak moors of dream. With all my circling, a failure to return. Hearing the cock crow in the dark, the first thing to move in the desolate farmyard, I lay awake to listen, the tripled shrill calls, as jagged and chill as water, while a pale movement of dawn began to climb and outline the dark window frame. Those were my first mornings, fresh as Eden, with dew on the face, like first kiss, the damp air, on dismantled flagstones from ash-moored embers. Hands now strive to rekindle that once leaping fire. On the recommendation of the Earl of Belmore, HML, the Lord Chancellor, has appointed the following gentleman to the Commission of the Peace for Tyrone County, on behalf and under the seal of H.M. Queen Victoria, <laughs> Dr. J.J. J. Todd, Omar, William Anderson, The Grange, Tullahogue, Neil Bradley, Straban, Robert Hall Anderson, Six Mile Cross, <gasps> John Montague, Garvahi. Between small... Quintuff Hills, the first slated house in the district. Garvahi, with its ring of furs. From a silver daguerreotype, my grandfather. Country lawyer, hedge schoolmaster, Redmondite stares out. White beard curled like a seahorse. Hovering anonymous in the background, his patient, tight-corseted wife prepares another meal to absorb the spirit that stokes a patriarch's wit. The children are kept out of sight, all eight surviving. She'll die with the eleventh. Such posed conceit recalls post-famine years when Catholics regained the precious right to rise above their neighbours. Labourers stooped in his fields, while John Montague presided at petty sessions or attended meetings of a Belfast firm. Sundays, rattling the leather reins, he drove a sidecar over the Fox's Leap 
to the dark glens of Altamuscan, where the tags came from, a blend of wild Irish and Ulster Puritan, the drama potching beside Cardinal Manning in his bedroom, combined to make a rustic gentleman. Sixty years later, his succession was broken, sons scattered to Australia, Brooklyn. The rotting sidecar propped a hole in the hedge, box lanterns askew. All the sadness of a house in decay showed in the weed-grown cobbles, the gaping stables. But the stacks still rode the stone-circle haggard, and the tall shed was walled high and dry with turf for the war years. Then the wide tent of a hearth, where Dagda's cauldron swung, shrank to a coal-fired stove and tiled stone. My uncle played the fiddle, more elegantly, the violin, a favourite at barn and crossroad dance. He knew the morning star and O'Neill's lament. Bachelor head of a house full of sisters, runner of poor racehorses, spendthrift. He left for the new world in an old disgrace. He left his fiddle in the rafters when he sailed, never played afterwards. A rural art silenced in the discord of Brooklyn. A heavily built man, tranquil-eyed as an ox, he ran a wild speakeasy and died of it. During the Depression, many dosed in his cellar. I attended his funeral in the Church of the Redemption. Then, unexpected successor reversed time to return where he had been born. During my school days, the fiddle rusted, the bridge fell away, the cat got snapped, reduced to a plaything, stinking of stale rosin. The country people asked if I also had music. All the family had had, but the fiddle was in pieces and the rafters remade before I discovered my craft. 20 years afterwards, I saw the church again and promised to remember my burly godfather and his rural craft after this fashion. So succession passes through strangest hands. Like dolmens round my childhood, the old people. Jamie McChrystal sang to himself a broken song without tune, without words. He tipped me a penny every pension day, fed kindly crust to winter birds. When he died, his cottage was robbed, mattress and money box torn and searched, only the corpse they didn't disturb. Maggie Owens was surrounded by animals, a mongrel bitch and shivering pups. Even in her bedroom, a she-goat cried. She was a well of gossip defiled fanged chronicler of a whole countryside, reputed a witch. All I could find was her lonely need to deride. The Niles lived along a mountain lane where heather bells bloomed, clumps of foxglove. All were blind, with blind pension and wireless. Dead eyes serpent flickered as one entered, 
to shelter from a downpour of mountain rain. Crickets chirped under the rocking hearthstone until the muddy sun shone out again. Mary Moore lived in a crumbling gatehouse, famous as Pisa for its leaning gable. Bag, apron and boots, she tramped the fields, driving lean cattle to a miry stable. A byword for fierceness, she fell asleep over love stories, red star and red circle, dreamed of gypsy love rites by firelight sealed. While Billy Harbison married a Catholic servant girl, when all his loyal family passed on, we danced round him shouting, to hell with King Billy, and dodged from the arc of his flailing blackthorn. Forsaken by both creeds, he showed little concern until the orange drums banged past in the summer and bowler and sash aggressively shone. Curate and doctor trudged to attend them. Through knee-deep snow, through summer heat, from main road to lane to broken path, gulping the mountain air with painful breath. Sometimes they were found by neighbours, silent keepers of a smokeless hearth, suddenly cast in the mould of death. Ancient Ireland indeed. I was reared by her bedside, the rune and the chant, evil eye and averted head. Formorian fierceness of family and local feud, gaunt figures of fear and of friendliness. For years they trespassed on my dreams, until once, in a standing circle of stones, I felt their shadows pass into that dark permanence of ancient forms. Prime Minister, 10 Downing Street, London. Dear Sir, we take the liberty of writing to you on the serious subject of the proposed entry of Great Britain into Europe. After lengthy and serious discussions, we have resolved to bring to your attention some constitutional issues which must be settled before the government or the sovereign can hand over their powers to an assembly of Europe. 1. The Commonwealth countries would still have a head of state who would be subordinate to such assembly should Her Majesty sign the Treaty of Rome. 2. We fail to see how Her Majesty could be advised to sign away her powers to an assembly the membership of which is composed of people not of the reformed faith. What happens to the coronation oath? Until a mandate is sought on these issues, we intend to take all possible constitutional action to prevent the government from signing the Treaty of Rome. We are currently studying the legal avenues with the view of obtaining an injunction against the British government 
to prevent it from taking the United Kingdom into the European common market. The Belfast County Grand Lodge, independent loyal Orange Institution of Ireland. I break again into the lean parish of my art, where huddled candles flare before a shrine, and men with caps in hand kneel stiffly down to see the many-fanged monstrance shine. He who stood at midnight upon a little mount which rose behind the chapel might see between five and six thousand torches, all blazing together, and forming a level mass of red, dusky light burning against the horizon. These torches were so close to each other that their light seemed to blend, as if they had constituted one wide surface of flame, and nothing could be more preternatural looking than the striking and devotional countenance of those who were assembled at their midnight worship when observed beneath this canopy of fire. Lights outline a hill as silently the people, like shepherd and angel, on that first morning, march from Alcoffin, Beltany, Rarogan, under rimmed hawthorn, Gothic evergreen, grouped in the warmth and cloud of their breath, along cattle paths crusted with ice, tarred roads to this grey country chapel, where a gas lamp hisses to light the crib under the crossbeam's damp, flaked message. Gloria in excelsis. Yes, I remember Carlton's description of Christmas in Tyrone, but things had changed at the end of the century. Religion was at a pretty low ebb in those days. We had one mass at ten o'clock on Sundays at which a handful went to communion. We went to confession and communion about every four months. The priests didn't take much interest in the people and didn't visit them except for sick calls. I think I became a priest because we were the most respectable family in the parish and it was expected of me. But what I really wanted to do was join the army, which was out of the question. So you see how your uncle became a Jesuit. Hesitant step of a latecomer, fingers dip at the font, fly up to the roof of the forehead with a sigh. On St. Joseph's outstretched arm he hangs his cap, then spends a very pleasant mass studying the when-marked heads of his neighbours, or gouging his name in the soft wood of the choir loft with the cross of his rosary beads. In a plain envelope marked important, The bread god. The devil has Christ where he wants him. A helpless infant in arms. A dead Christ on the cross. Rome's central act of worship is the Eucharistic wafer. Idolatry. The worst idol under heaven. Noseless, eyeless, earless, helpless. 
Speechless. for communion. Heavy coat and black shawl surge in thick waves, cattle thronged in a fair, to the oblong of the altar rails. And there, where red-buried holly shines against gold in the door of the tabernacle, wait patient and prayerful and crowded for each moment of silence, eyes closed, mouth raised, for the advent of the flesh-graced word. Dear brother, ecumenism is the new name of the whore of Babylon. She who shits on the seven hills, one church, one state with the Pope the head of the state. By reunion, Rome means absorption. Uniformity means tyranny. Apists equals papists. But God delights in variety. No two leaves are exactly alike. Coming out of the chapel, the men were already assembled around the oak tree. Solid brogues, thick coats, staring at the women, sheltering cigarettes. Once a politician came, climbed on the graveyard wall, and they listened to all his plans with the same docility. Eyes quiet, under caps, like sloped eaves. Nailed to the wet bark, the notice of a football match, Pierce's versus Hibernian's or a monster carnival in aid of church funds featuring Farrell's band. Loyalists, remember! Millions have been murdered for refusing to grovel before Rome's mass idol, the host. King Charles I and his frog Queen Henrietta gloat in their letters that they have almost exterminated the Protestants of Ireland. The priests in every parish were told to record how many killed. Under Roger Moore and Sir Philip O'Neill, instruments of Rome, 40,000 loyal Protestants were massacred like game fowl in one night. Cromwell went to Ireland to stop the Catholics murdering Protestants. To learn the Mass Rock's lesson, leave your car. Descend frost-gripped steps to where a humid moss overlaps the valley floor. Crisp as a pistol shot, the winter air recalls poor tags folding the nap of their frieze under one knee, 
long-suffering as beasts, but parched for that surviving sign of grace, the bog-Latin murmur of their priest, a crude stone oratory carved by a cousin commemorates the place. For 200 years, people of our name have sheltered in this glen, but now all have left. A few flowers wither on the altar, so I melt a ball of snow from the hedge into their rusty tin before I go. I sometimes wonder if anyone could have brought the two sides together. Your father, I know, was very bitter about having to leave. But when I visited home before leaving for the Australian mission, I found our Protestant neighbours friendly. And yet we had lost any position we had in the neighbourhood. You realise, of course, that all this has nothing to do with religion. Perhaps this new man will find a way to resolve the old hatreds. I saw the Pope breaking stones on Friday, a blind parson sewing a patchwork quilt, two bishops cutting rushes with their croziers, roaring Meg firing rosary beads for cannonballs, corks in boats afloat on the summit of the Sperrins, a severed head speaking with a grafted tongue, a snail pair in Royal Avenue with a hatchet, British troops firing on the Shankill, a mill and a forge on the back of a cuckoo, the fox sitting conceitedly at a window chewing tobacco, and a curlew in flight surveying a united Ireland. I hope Lynch will not be executed, for I know he knew nothing of this till the last moment, though at the last meeting of the council he consented by his silence when I alone opposed it. I was told Tyrone was not Ireland, and that I could not take a correct view of the situation from the position of Tyrone. Then came the Great War. Great empires have been overturned. The position of countries has been violently altered. The modes of thought of men, the whole outlook on affairs, the grouping of parties, all have encountered tremendous changes. But as the deluge subsides and the waters fall short, we see the dreary steeples of Fermanagh and Tyrone emerging once again. The integrity of their quarrel is one of the few institutions that has been unaltered by the cataclysm. Once again, with creased forehead and trembling hands, my father calls me from stifling darkness. Little enough I know of your struggle, although you come to me more and more, free of that heavy body armour you tried to dissolve with alcohol, a pale face straining in dreamlight like a fish's belly, upward to life. 
hesitantly, I trace your part in the holy war to restore our country, slipping from home to smoke an absentee's mansion, concoct ambushes. Games turn serious when the crossfire at Falbum riddled the tender of policemen, one bleeding badly stretched upon the stone flags of our kitchen, your sisters moving in a whisper of blood and bandages. Strange war, when the patrol scouted bales of fodder, stray timber, tar to prepare those sheltering walls for reprisal savage flames, if he should die. That night you booked into a Strabane hotel. Locals were rarely used for jobs, orders of the Dublin organiser, shot afterwards by his own side. A generation later, the only sign of your parochial struggle was when the plough rooted rusty gums, dull bayonets, in some rushy glen for us to play with. Although again and again the dregs of disillusion churned in our northern parents' guts to set their children's teeth on edge, my mother hobbling to the shed to burn the freestead uniforms her two brothers had thrown off. Frugal, she saved the buttons. My father, home from the boat at Cove, staring in pale anger at a Redmond commemoration stamp or tearing to flitters the polite mascard sent by a Catholic policeman. But what if you have no country to set before Christ only a broken province? No parades, fierce medals will mark Tyrone's rebirth, betrayed by both South and North. So lie still, difficult old man. You were right to choose a Brooklyn slum rather than a half-life in this bypassed and dying place. When I am angry, sick or tired, a line on my forehead pulses, the line on my left temple opened by an old car accident. My father had the same scar in the same place as if the same fault ran through us both. Anger, impatience, a stress born of violence. Who knows the sound a wound makes? Scar tissue can rend, the old hurt tear open as the torso of the fiddle groans to carry the tune, to carry the pain of a lost. Slow herds of cattle roving over a soft meadow dark bogland, pastoral rhythm. I assert a civilization died here, it trembles underfoot where I walk these small sad hills. It rears in my bloodstream when I hear a bleat of Saxon condescension. Westminster to hell. It is less 
than these strangely carved, 5,000-year-resisting stones that lonely cross. This bitterness I inherit from my father, the swarm of blood to the brain, the vomit surge of race hatred, the victim seeing the oppressor, bold Jacobean planter or gadget-laden marine, who has scattered his household gods, used his people as servants, flushed his women like game. My father, the least happy man I have known. His face retained the pallor of those who work underground. The lost years in Brooklyn, listening to a subway shudder the earth. But a traditional Irishman, who released from his grill in the Clark Street IRT, drank neat whiskey until he reached the only element he felt at home in any longer. Brute oblivion and yet picked himself up most mornings to march down the street, extending his smile to all sides of the good, non-Negro neighborhood belled by St. Teresa's Church. When he came back, we walked together across fields of Garvahi to see Hawthorne on the summer hedges, as though he had never left. A bend of the road, which still sheltered primroses. But we did not smile in the shared complicity of a dream, for when weary Odysseus returns, Telemachus must leave. Often, as I descend into subway or underground, I see his bald head behind the bars of the small booth, the mark of an old car accident beating on his ghostly forehead. As the bulldozer bites into the tree-ringed hill fort, its grapnel jaws lift the mouse, the flower, with equal attention, and the plated twigs and clay of the bird's nest, shaken by the traffic, fall from a crevice under the bridge into the slow-flowing, mud-choked stream below the quarry, where the mountain trout turns up its pale belly to die. Balance sheet. Item. The shearing away of an old barn. Crisscross of beams where pigeons moan. High small window where the swallow built. Whitewashed dry stone walls. Item. Ten men from the district being for a period of time fully employed, their ten wives could buy groceries and clothes to send 30 children content to school for a few months and raise local merchants' hearts by paying their bills. Item. 
The suppression of stone-lined paths, old potato boiler full of crocuses, overhanging lilac or laburnum, sweet pea climbing the fence. Item. A man driving from Belfast to Londonderry can arrive a quarter of an hour earlier. A lorry load of goods ditto, thus making Ulster more competitive in the international market. Item. The filling in of chance streams, uncovered wells, all unchanneled sources of water that might weaken foundations bubbling over the macadam. Item. A local travelling from the prefabricated suburbs of bypass villages can manage an average of 50 rather than 40 miles per hour on his way to see relatives in Oma Hospital or Lunatic Asylum. Item. The disappearance of all signs of wildlife. Wrens or robin's nest. A rabbit nibbling a colt's foot leaf. A stray squirrel or... Water rat. The uprooting of wayside hedges with their accomplices. Devil's bit and pee the bed. Primrose and dog rose. An unlawful assembly of thistles. The removal of all hillocks and humps. Superstition-styled fairy forts and long barrows. Now legally to be regarded as obstacles masking a driver's view. Item. The dead of Garvahi graveyard, including my grandfather, can have an unobstructed view, the trees having been sheared away for a car park, of the living passing at great speed, sometimes quick enough to come straight in. Let it be clear that I do not grudge my grandfather this long-delayed pleasure. I like the idea of him rising from the rotting boards of the coffin with his J.P.'s white beard and penalising drivers for travelling faster than jaunting cars. From the quarry behind the school, the crustacean claws of the excavator rummage to withdraw a payload, a giant bite. Tis pleasant for to take a stroll by Glencull waterside on a lovely evening in spring in nature's early pride. You pass by many a flowery bank and many a shady dell like walking through enchanted land where fairies used to dwell. Tuberous tentacles of oak, hawthorn, buried pignut, the topsoil of a living shape of earth lifts like a scalp to lay open. The trout are rising to the fly, the lambkins sport and play. The pretty feathered warblers are singing by the way. The blackbirds and the thrushes' notes by the echoes multiplied to fill the vale with melody by Glencull waterside. Slipping sand shale, 
compressed veins of rock, old foundations, a soft chaos to be swallowed wholesale, masticated, regurgitated by the mixer. Give not to me the rugged scenes of which some love to write, the beetling cliffs or hanging crags and the eagle in full flight. But give to me the fertile fields, the farmer's joy and pride, the homestead and the orchards fine by Glen Cull waterside. Secret places, birds' nests, animal paths, ghosts of children hunkering down snail glistering slopes, spin through iron cylinders to resume new life as a pliant stream of building material. These scenes bring recollections back to comrades scattered wide, who used with me to walk these banks in youthful manly pride. They've left their boyhood's happy homes and crossed o'er oceans wide. Now but in dreamland may they walk by Glen Cull waterside. A brown stain seeps away from where the machine rocks and groans to itself, discolouring the grass, thickening the current of the trout stream which flows between broken banks, the waterside a smear of mud towards the reinforced bridge of the new road. Envoi, the search for beauty. My sympathy goes out to the farmer who, mad drunk after a cattle mart, bought himself a concrete swan for 30 bob and lugged it all the way home to deposit it where the monkey puzzle was meant to grow on his tiny landscaped lawn. The real aims of a revolution, those which are not illusions, are always to be realised after that revolution. They say it is the fatal destiny of that land that no purposes whatsoever which are meant for her good will prevail. Again, that note. A weaving melancholy like a bird crossing moorland. Pale ice on a curry opening inward. Soundless harp strings of rain. The pathos of last letters in the 1916 room. Mother, I thank. A podgy landmine. Pierce's sword stick leading to a carefully profiled picture. That point where folk and art meet, murmurs Herr Doctor as the wail of tin whistle climbs against fiddle and the baron begins. Lost cry of the yellow bittern. The mythic lyre shrunk to country size, the clatter of brogues on the flagstones, the colourless dram of pochin. Is that the world we were made for? Smell of apple blossom in the air. Step of a huntress on the stair. 
In Bedford Park, a young man waits, still warm at the heart of family, but fearful what life the hazard of his slight gift holds in store. I was about to learn that the poet must be shaped by luckless luck into saint, lover, or philosopher. Smell of apple blossom in the air, step of a goddess on the stair. Symbolic depth charge of music releases a national dream from Clark to Paladin in a single violent day. Files of men from shattered buildings, slouch hat, blunt Moser gun, frame the freedom that they won. The bread queue, the messianic agitator of legend arriving on the train, Christ and socialism. Wheatfield and factory vivid in the sun. Connolly's dream, if anyone. All revolutions are interior. The displacement of spirit by the arrival of fact. Ceaseless as cloud across sky, sudden as sun. Movement of a butterfly modifies everything. The tribes merged into the hills, the ultimate rocks where seals converse. There they supped rainwater, ate sparse berries, and grouped around pale fires at evening, comforted themselves with runics of verse. The nation forgot them until there was a revolution. Then soldiers clambered the slopes, saluting in friendliness, Come down, you are the last pride of our race, herdsmen aristocrats who have kept the faith. As they strayed through the vertical cities, everyone admired their blue eyes, open smiles, vowels like flowers caught in the teeth, the nervous majesty of their gait. To the boredom of pavements they brought the forgotten grace of the beast. Soon townspeople tired of them, began to deride their smell, their speech. Some returned, others stayed behind, accommodating themselves to a new language. In either case, they may be dying out, a tragedy anticipated in the next government report. The train crawls across a bridge through the cantilevered interstices, a lace curtain, monstrously magnified, we overlook the sprawling town. Row after row of council cottages ride the hill, curving up to the church or down to the docks where a crane tilts into emptiness. Here, nothing has been planned. Assembled, yes, casual and coarse as detritus affronting eye and mind. Only a drift of smoke and the ant-like activity of cars indicate life, with the wild flap of laundry in a thousand backyards. Soon we are running through summer fields where a roller is at work, bruising neat stripes of corn under hawthorn hedges, patterned in white flame. 
take your stand. The visitor to Cool Park in search of a tradition finds a tangled alleyway, a hint of foundation wall, the kitchen floor, high wire to protect the famous beech tree from raw initials, and a lake bereft of swans. Before the film, the censor script flashes on the screen. I barely notice it, so deeply has the harness worn in. Elegant port wine brick, a colonial dream. Now we own the cow, why keep the cream? During 1960-61, Irishmen attained many high positions abroad and the national economy, for the first time in history, showed an upward trend. Only the Vatican continued to ignore us. witnessed our spiritual empire after years so long enduring that suffering became a form of speech with all our songs plangent or soft does fate at last relent with a trade expansion of five percent now the unsmiling Saxon, surprised and diffident, greets an equal as exemplary in the Congo, rational in the UN, we prospect the lands beyond Kipling's setting sun. Already a shocked Belfast beholds a black-veiled queen enter the Vatican. <laughs> Through Washington and Canterbury, all roads lead to Rome. Granted a saint, we might shepherd another dark ages home. Got myself a crying, talking, sleeping, walking, living dog. Got to do my best to please her just cause she's a living doll. Got a roving eye and that is why she satisfies my soul. Got the one and only walking, talking, living doll. We'll take a look at the flock hole in Mullingar, there were two sounds the breaking of glass and the background pulse of music. Young girls roamed the streets with eager faces, pushing for men. Bottles in hand, they rode out for a song. Puritan Ireland's dead and gone, a myth of O'Connor and O'Foyloin. In the early morning, the lovers lay on both sides of the canal, listening on Sony transistors to the agony of Pope John. Yet it didn't seem strange or blasphemous, this ground base of death and resurrection as we strolled along. Puritan Ireland's dead and gone, a myth of O'Connor and O'Foyloin. Further on, breasting the wind, waves of the deserted grain harbour, we saw a pair, a cob and his pen most nobly linked, 
Everything then in our casual morning vision seemed to flow in one direction, line simple as a song. Puritan Ireland's dead and gone, a myth of O'Connor and O'Fueloin. The gloomy images of a provincial Catholicism. In a thousand schoolrooms, children work quietly while Christ bleeds on the wall. Wound in a native music, curlew echoing tin whistle to eye-swimming melancholy. Is that our offering? While all Europe seeks new versions of old ways, the hammer of boules swinging to eastern harmonies. From 1960, the gross national product Sight of the Skelligs at sunset restores our high brassel. The Atlantic expands on the cliffs. The herring gull claims the air. Again that note. Above a self-drive car. I go to say goodbye to the Kalyach that terrible figure who haunted my childhood, but no longer harsh, a human being merely, hurt by event. The cottage, circled by trees, weathered to admonitory shapes of desolation by the mountain winds, straggles into view. The rank thistles and leathery bracken of untilled fields stretch behind with a final outcrop, the hooped figure by the roadside, its retinue of dogs, which gave tongue as I approach with savage, whinging cries, so that she slowly turns a moving nest of shawls and rags to view, to stare the stranger down. And I feel again that ancient awe the terror of a child before the great hooked nose, the cheeks dewlapped with dirt, the staring blue of the sunken eyes, the mottled claws clutching a stick. But now hold and return her gaze to greet her as she greets me in friendliness. Memories have wrought reconciliation between us. We talk in ease at last like old friends, lovers almost, sharing secrets of neighbours she quarrelled with who now lie in Garvahi graveyard beyond all hatred of my family and hers how she never married though a man came asking in her youth you'd be loath to leave your own she sighs and go among strangers his parish ten miles off for sixty years since, she has lived alone in one place, obscurely honoured by such confidences. I idle by the summer roadside listening while the monologue falters, continues, rehearsing the small events of her life. The only true madness is loneliness. The monotonous voice in the skull that never stops because never heard. Is <laughs> 
And there, where the dog rose shines in the head, she tells me a story so terrible that I try to push it away, my bones melting. Late at night, a drunk came beating at her door to break it in, the bolts snapping from the soft wood, the thin mongrels rushing to cut, but yelping as he whirls with his farm boots to crush their skulls. In the darkness they wrestle, two creatures crazed with loneliness, the smell of the decaying cottage in his nostrils like a drug, his body heavy on hers, the tasteless trunk of a 70-year-old virgin, which he rummages while she battles for life, bony fingers reaching desperately to push against his bull neck. I pray to the Blessed Virgin herself for help, and after a time, I broke his grip. He rolls to the floor, snores asleep, while she cowers until dawn, and the dog's whimpering starts him awake to lurch back across the wet bog. And still the dog rose shines in the hedge, petals beaten wide by rain. It sways slightly at the tip of a slender, tangled, arching branch, which with her stick she gathers into us. The wild rose is the only rose without thorns, she says, holding a wet blossom for a second in a hand knotted as the knob of her stick. Whenever I see it, I remember the Holy Mother of God and all she suffered. Briefly, the air is strong with the smell of that weak flower, offering its crumbled yellow cup and pale bleeding lips fading to white at the rim of each bruised and heart-shaped petal. <laughs> 